0: Well, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 through 12 is our text for this morning, and there is significant development that takes place uh, in these few verses this morning. Remember that verses 3 through verse 14 are one continuous, unbroken sentence in the original Greek language. As Paul considers the lavish spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ, he almost seems in these verses to break out in exuberant praise, and rightfully so. Paul has systematically recounted what God has done, what God is doing, and this morning from our text, we will learn what God is going to do. We learned that in, in redemptive histories past, in eternity past, we were predestined. And God is working in us in real time and space as he redeems us. By Christ's blood. But the question still remains, having learned what God has done, having learned what God is doing, what is God going to do? We'll learn that from our text this morning. You see, verses 9 through 12 lead us to creation's climactic crescendo. Here's what you need to understand. Time and history are moving. They're marching forward in a divine direction. As preordained by the Father, moving towards an end, God's saving purposes, which He planned in eternity past, have their final and ultimate goal in the uniting or the summing up of all things in Christ Jesus. Every moment of time has been sovereignly ordained and is marching toward the culmination of days when Jesus Christ will step back into the world that He has made and wrap everything up. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that day. That just by way of some brief context this morning, let's turn our attention to our text. We'll be reading this morning from verses 7 through 12 in order to gain a full context of Paul's thought process here. Let me encourage you, if you have the ability, to stand with us this morning as we read God's Word. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 12, pens the following words. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Here's our text for this morning. Making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth, in Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that, or in order that, we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. You may be seated. Three points this morning on your outline if you're taking notes. The first thing that I want to draw your attention to is this. The mystery of God's will is salvation Through the cross of Jesus Christ. The mystery of God's will is salvation through the cross of Jesus Christ. Let me direct your attention back to verse 9. Paul says, Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ. Friends, understand this and understand this well. God hasn't just saved us without giving us any understanding of his redemptive plan. Praise God for that. He's given us insight, wisdom, that we might discern and understand his redemptive plan, what he has done in eternity past, what he is doing in real time and space, and what he is yet to do in the summing up or the wrapping up of all things in Jesus Christ. God wants us. He desires that we, the redeemed, might know and understand well his saving purposes. If you can remember back to last week, We said that God lavished on us two particular graces. God lavished on us the grace of wisdom and the grace of insight. And you'll remember if you were here that I mentioned, if you just briefly look at verse 8, a cursory reading of verse 8 might make it appear as though God is the subject of wisdom and insight. But I drew your attention to the fact that I don't think that's the case. I think we, the redeemed, are the subject of wisdom and insight in verse 8. I think those are two graces that God has given us. In other words, in Christ, we've been redeemed by his blood, we've been forgiven of our trespasses, we've been lavished with the riches of his grace, and then last and fourth, we've been given heavenly wisdom and insight. He graced us with wisdom in order that we might understand ultimate things. Who is God? What is he doing? What about the fall? What about redemption? Wisdom speaks to ultimate things. Whereas insight, he's also graced us with insight. And that insight helps us live in this Genesis 3 fallen world with a sense of biblical practicality. In other words, that we would have discernment or prudence. That we might know how to live in such a way as would be pleasing to Christ. That might make much of the gospel. That we might walk in a manner worthy of the gospel in which we've been called. God has given us insight. He wants us to understand and to live in light of his redemptive plan for our lives in the world in which he has made. Now, let me turn your attention back to verse 9 here. Paul says that God has made known to us the mystery of his will. Mystery, it's that Greek word mysterion. And it isn't used here in the sense of something spooky or something eerie. It's not a mystery in that sense. Mystery simply refers to the disclosure or the making known of something that was previously undisclosed. Mystery simply refers to the disclosure or the making known of a previously hidden or veiled reality. It means that God's revealing something that until that time was not previously made known to us. You see, prior to the entrance of Jesus Christ into this world, the full revelation of the gospel was undisclosed. God's redemptive plan was moving along just just on schedule, right as he had planned it. But the the, the glory of the gospel, the glory of God's redemptive plan was not fully made known to us until Jesus stepped into our world. It was there in the person and work of Jesus Christ that that the dots, so to speak, of God's redemptive plan were connected in our hearts and minds. We knew that all history was moving in a progression, that it was all moving in a direction, but it wasn't until Jesus stepped into this world 2,000 years ago that it was the aha moment. Now I see that God, our Creator, is also hanging on a tree as our Redeemer. There are two important characteristics included in the New Testament concept of mystery. Number one, mystery can't be discovered by mere human intellect. It's always a revelation of God. When you see that word, mystery, in your Bible, you need to know that apart from God's divine revelation, apart from God making it clear, making it known to us, revealing it to our understanding, we wouldn't understand it. We wouldn't know it. No course of instruction, no curriculum of a university, no scientific investigation will ever reveal God's mystery to us. You can't find him out in any other way. God must tell us the answers, This means that apart from God graciously disclosing the reality of his mystery in our hearts and minds, we still wouldn't understand it, but likewise, neither would we even desire to. Neither would we desire to. Listen to Paul's words from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You don't need to turn there. Paul writes, for the word or the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, God speaking here, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through its own wisdom, and so it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, through the gospel message, to save those who believe. Mystery has to be revealed, has to be divinely revealed. Otherwise, we wouldn't understand it, we wouldn't know it, and neither would we want to. Neither would we want to. Secondly, mystery is always revealed at the proper time. You see that word appearing in your Bible? Mystery. Mystery is always revealed at the proper time in Scripture. We'll see this in verse 10 a little bit more. We'll come across that phrase in the fullness of time. But mystery is always revealed at the proper time. Charles Spurgeon said this, and I love it. He said, The infinite Lord appoints the date of every event. All times are in his hands. There are no loose threads in the, in the providence of God. No stitches are dropped, no events left to chance. The great clock of the universe keeps good time, and the whole machinery of providence moves with unerring punctuality. Everything our great God does in his good providence moves forward with unerring punctuality. I love that. God's plan has never been delayed. It's never been altered. He's moving history forward step by step according to his predetermined plan. And that should give many of us who fret or who worry about events yet to come, let me insert one here, how about an upcoming election? That should give many of us who worry and fret about events which are yet to come an incredible sense of peace. God is moving history forward, step by step, moment by moment, event by event, right as he has planned. Just as he has predetermined. Nothing is taking him by surprise. Nothing is rocking him off his throne. Nothing is making him scratch his head. Just as he has planned. Just as God is in complete control of his redemptive plan, so he is also in complete control of every moment of life on this small blue dot we call home. We need to know that. That truth needs to be impressed deeply upon our hearts. These words he made known to us, they reveal that There's not only a historical dimension to the mystery here, but there's also a personal one. He made known to who? He made known to us, Paul tells us. You see, the recipients of God's glorious disclosure are the redeemed. It's us. As believers, we're a part of God's inner circle, and far from puffing us up, that ought to deeply humble us. But think about that. We are a part of God's inner circle, so to speak. And it shouldn't puff us up. That should deeply humble us. As a matter of fact, you know what Paul said in Romans 12.3? I would venture to say that you know what Paul says in Romans 12.1 and 2. But how about the verse that comes after that? It's just as important. Romans 12.3. Do not think more highly of yourselves than you ought to think, but think of yourselves with sober judgment according to the grace with which God has measured out to you. Sober judgment, humility. But at the same time, Wow. God has graced us with incredible wisdom and knowledge about what he has done, about what he is currently doing in real time and space, redemptively, and about the end of the story. We've been given the blessing of sharing in the secret that God will one day unite all things in heaven and on earth in Christ. But here's the thing, friends. We're not to keep that a secret. Jesus looked at us And he said, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. You see, the question isn't, Are you a light or aren't you a light? The question is, Are you shining or are you not shining? We are a light. I am a light. You're the light of the world. You're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. You see, the the greatest story ever told, that of God's grace in Christ, must be made known, it must be communicated. It's the Father's will that the most sublime secret, what was once the secret, be broadcast wide and far, and that it penetrate deeply into the hearts of those who are his own. As a matter of fact, uh, God's redemptive plan, the gospel message, must be broadcast in order that some might respond to it in faith and repentance. Paul asked four rhetorical but very sobering questions in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15. Don't turn there. These are the four rhetorical questions he asked. He said, how will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And then Paul goes right on two verses later in Romans 10, 17. And he says, so faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of Christ. Hearing the word of Christ. So let me ask you this question, and it's a humbling one for me. It's not, it's not, are you a light or are you not a light? It's are you shining or are you not shining? Is your light shining? Is your light shining? Is, is the once revealed divine secret God redeeming sinful man by hanging the sun on a Roman tree is that message which was once concealed but now revealed to us, the redeemed, is it being made known as a result of us? Is your light visible? Is there, there are some 38,000 people that live in our city. You can't reach them all, but you can reach a few. And so the question I would have is who's on your evangelistic radar? Who that you rub shoulders with every single day knows about your saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's sobering for me to think about. I think sometimes people think the pastors have it all together and they have these really wonderful ministry ministries and, and they're they're phenomenal at evangelism and they have it all together. Friends, let me tell you this I get butterflies in my stomach and my palms get sweaty every time I think about sharing the gospel with a lost person. That's not the right response but it's the reality of this sinful man. 38,000 people in our community. We can't reach them all, but we can reach some. Who's on our radar? Who are we sharing the gospel with? The question is this, if not you, then who? If not now, then when? If not me, then who? If not now, then when? Bob McNabb, a friend of mine, penned these words as a college student wanting to make his life count for the sake of the gospel. He said this, I've just seen the world, and I'll set it to rhyme, the way that God sees it all the time. It's starving for food, number in millions, while those needing life must be counted by billions. There is a green pasture nearby, only a stone's throw away, but without a shepherd, in hunger, they'll stay. Where are the shepherds? Where have they gone? They're out pulling weeds in their own front lawn. But the shepherds have problems, they'll tell you themselves. The manure from sheep, oh, how it smells. The problems they debate are important, you see. What color should the drapes in the shepherd's club be? Nikes or Reeboks, which should a shepherd wear? Ask the dying and see if they care. But I've seen the world in the way it can be, and these things are no longer important to me. Manure, I must agree, certainly does smell, but what does it matter when sheep go to hell? Once again come the tears, once again I must weep, for no one is listening as the Lord calls, feed my sheep. Who's on our radar? The mystery of the gospel made known to us. Does anyone know it as a result of it having been made known to us? Let me draw your attention back to verse 9. Paul says that God made the mystery of his will known according to his purpose. Purpose here is that Greek word eudokia. It's the exact same word that Paul used in verse 5 when he said that God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, and here's the kicker, according to the purpose, according to the purpose of his will. And I mentioned several weeks back, if you have the New American Standard Bible laying on your lap there, the New American Standard translates that word purpose beautifully. It translates it kind intention. God's kind intention intention. Just as it was God's kind intention or his good pleasure to predestine and adopt us as sons, so it is his good intention, his kind intention, to reveal to us the mystery of his will. God hasn't revealed his redemptive plan begrudgingly, but rather joyfully. The Father takes special delight in planning whatever must be planned in order to bring about the salvation full and free of men who have plunged themselves headlong into misery and ruin, but he takes equal great pleasure in revealing or telling us about his marvelous plan. Not only in the plan itself does he take great delight in, but the revealing of that plan. He takes great delight in his kind intention was his purpose to do so. Lastly, notice how God made the mystery of his, of his will known to us. Paul says that he made it known according to his purpose, and here's the phrase, which he set forth in Christ. God's carefully designed plan to make known the mystery of his will, namely the gospel, just like the mystery itself, has always had its focus in Christ you happen to notice, by the way, just in verses 7 through 12, how many times that phrase in Christ or in him, and we haven't even finished the first chapter yet, friends, in Christ. All of scripture finds its focus in Christ. All of God's redemptive drama finds its terminus in Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who will come at the culmination of days, and everything will be summed up or wrapped up in him. It's it's no wonder why the writer of Hebrews tells us, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He should be our focus at all times, unceasingly, in him. The good purposes of the Father were to be effected or they were to be carried out in Christ who died to redeem a people for his own possession. I mean, friends, mystery of mysteries, marvel of marvels. God became a man and died for me. The second thing I want to draw your attention to, if you're taking notes this morning, is this. God will one day restore everything that sin has broken. God will one day restore everything that sin has broken. Let me draw your attention to verse 10. Paul writes, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. You see, the mystery of God's will is salvation through the cross of Jesus Christ. But it is further revealed in his plan to sum up, or his plan to unite all things in heaven and on earth in Jesus Christ. In other words, there is a glorious closing act to God's divine redemptive drama, which includes Jesus Christ stepping back into this world in which he has made and reigning and ruling without contention. Before Paul tells us what it is that God is going to do, notice that he tells us when he's going to do it. Paul says that God's plan will commence at the fullness of time. We've seen that phrase before, haven't we? Think for just a moment. The fullness of time. We've seen that phrase before. Where have we seen it? We've seen it in Galatians 4.4, 4, speaking about Jesus Christ's first advent. Is coming into this world. Paul writes, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. The fullness of time. You see, there it's a reference, of course, to Jesus' first advent, when Jesus stepped into our world to inaugurate God's redemptive plan. If you think in terms of an hourglass, the first coming of Christ would have filled the lower compartment of the hourglass. The fullness of time in our present context, here in Ephesians, points to Jesus' second advent when he'll return to wrap up God's redemptive plan. Think about this. God is not, nor has he ever, sat in heaven scratching his head, so to speak, trying to figure out when he is going to come and close up shop. That's never happened. It's never happened. God has appointed a firm, fixed, settled time when he, will, when he will bring his redemptive program to its glorious conclusion. There's coming a day when both halves of the hourglass will be full. We know not when that day is, but God knows, and he'll be not a moment behind. The same God who planned, accomplished, and applied Jesus Christ's salvation to every believer is the one who controls the march of history as day by day and event by event it makes its irrevocable way towards its final consummation in Jesus Christ. That word fullness there, it's a beautiful word. Look at your Bibles. The fullness of time. The word fullness there has the idea of completeness or something having reached its goal or reached its terminus. It's interesting to note, if you have the New American Standard Bible laying there on your lap, you'll notice that verse 10 says this. It says, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. That word administration there just means management or economy. With a view to a management suitable or with a view to an economy suitable for the fullness of times. And you ask yourself the question, what in the world is Paul talking about here? Well, I think that Paul is talking about something very specific. I think that Paul has in view here the millennial kingdom, that thousand-year literal earthly reign of Jesus Christ here on this earth. And what's going to happen in that messianic kingdom? Well, Paul explains to us when he says that God's plan is to unite all things in Christ. You see, the millennial kingdom and the eternal state, which comes right on the heels of that thousand-year millennial kingdom, Those are the two times when the chaos of this sin-riddled world will be removed and universal harmony will be restored to the world in which God has created. And Jesus Christ will sit on his throne uncontested. Now, Jesus Christ sits on his throne today, does he not? Ruling. He is the Sovereign, capital S, the one who possesses all control. But at the same time, his rule and his reign are contested today. We have an adversary, do we not? who roars around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. You see, this side of eternity, it can be hard to keep this truth That God is going to come and he's going to close up shop and he's going to do it gloriously in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in the world that we live in, with, with what fills our view on a daily basis, it can be challenging to keep that truth and reality in front of us. I mean, when you look at history, it looks as if the exact opposite is taking place. It looks as if things are absolutely falling apart. You see, ever since sin came careening into this world, things have been falling apart. Immediately, man was separated from God, Genesis chapter 3. And then one chapter later, man was separated from man as Cain killed Abel. And then there was some sort of semblance of a, of a, of a unifying uh, uh, desire in Genesis chapter 11. As the people came together, they tried to build a tower. But what did God do? He judged them and he scattered them all throughout the earth. Now think about today, just the world we live in today. Maybe you turned the news on this morning, but today we're at war amongst ourselves, nations against nation, class against class. A struggle, strife, bitterness, and rage are probably the best descriptors of our relationships. The television is full of it, and our politicians and media propagate it and profit from it. We witness untold suffering and calamities, disease and death. It seems as though the world is unraveling at the seams. But we must keep in view. We know what the end of the story is. Now, does that make you appreciate the wisdom and insight now? God has revealed what he has done, what he is doing in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, right here in real time and in real space, in our lives. But he has also disclosed the end of the story, which keeps us encouraged When what fills our view is a world that seems like it is being ripped apart. Yes, right now Satan rules this world. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, not autonomously or sovereignly. Satan is subject to God like a leash dog is subject to its master. We need to be clear about that. But it's interesting to note that Jesus referred to Satan in John chapter 12 as the ruler of this world, albeit he completes the sentence by saying who will be cast out. He's the ruler of this world who will be cast out. Paul referred to Satan as the god of this world, lowercase g, obviously, and the prince of the power of the air. But there's coming a day when God will deal once and for all with sin and with Satan. There's coming a day when Satan will be cast out of his temporary seat of power and sent to the lake of fire forever. God is ushering everything forward to the time when Christ will rule over all things in heaven and on earth uncontested. In other words, without even the faintest particle of sin. At this time, everything will be brought under the rulership and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing in the universe, absolutely nothing in the universe that is not going to be brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ in some way or another. Nothing. Everything will be brought under his lordship and authority. You see, everything past, everything present, everything future is moving towards the time when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, let me impress this upon your hearts just a little bit. If you're sitting here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ savingly, You can bow a knee now, or you can bow a knee later. But be not mistaken, you will bow a knee. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God, and in due time, he will exalt you. You live exalted now, and you'll be humbled in the end. Trying to fight God on that point is like trying to walk to the front line of a nuclear war with a water pistol. It's one you won't win. So repent, believe, fly to Jesus, cast yourself on his mercy. Today's the day of salvation. Mercy is grace and free because Jesus paid for it. He paid it all, all to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. You see, heaven and earth are not in tune today. We're down here playing our own little tune for now. But Jesus Christ will soon return, and he'll reharmonize everything that sin has distorted. You see, sin is tearing things apart. But there's coming a day in Christ, there there will dawn a new day when God will gather everything together in the culmination of ages. God will restore everything that sin has broken. He'll right every single wrong, and he will rid the world of every remaining vestige of sin. And there Jesus Christ will reign uncontested from his glorious throne. He is the head, and everything will fall in line under him. He is the alpha of time's first pulse beat, and he's the omega of its parting gasp. He will gather to himself all that survives the clash of worlds at his return. He will be the head, and it will all fall in line. There's a lot of theology in that last sentence. We don't have time for this morning, but suffice it to say this. Jesus Christ is returning. He's returning in power. He's returning in glory. He's returning in might, and he's returning in righteousness. We look forward to that day found in him, not clothed in a righteousness of our own, but clothed in righteousness divine. Let me bring a little bit of application to bear here. Just as God's grand plan of redemption is unfolding exactly as he designed, right on schedule. So we must believe, brothers and sisters, so we must believe the exact same concerning his providence in our daily lives. God's providence is working out history day by day, moment by moment, event by event, to bring redemption's divine drama to its culmination in Jesus Christ. But we should never forget that that same providence is working daily in our lives. When you sit across from the doctor and he uses the word terminal, you must remember God's good providence is working just as planned for his glory and for your good. When you get a telephone call that someone that you love dearly has been, has been killed in a fatal car accident, you must remember in that moment that God's good providence is working and he's doing all things for his glory and for your good. When your teenage child dashes your heart and is not walking with the Lord, you need to remember that God's good providence is at work and he's doing all things for his glory and for your good. When the fabric of your marriage is rocked by undesirable sin, you must remember that God's good providence is at work and he's doing all things for his glory and your good, though it may be hard in the circumstances to understand and see it. When you walk in your boss's office and he lets you know you're being released from your job, you must remember that God's good providence is working just as planned. When you're ridiculed and rejected for your faith in Christ, you must remember that God's good providence is working just as planned. Friends, the grace, and it is a grace, the grace of being able to trust God's sovereign superintendence is a life-orienting grace. It, It lets us see the world and it lets us see the events of today with a whole new set of eyes, through a whole new set of lenses. To be able to trust God's sovereign superintendence, not only in the particulars of his redemptive plan, but also in the whole of lives, is one of the greatest comforts in life. I may not understand what's happening. I may not understand why it's happening. But I understand the one whose wise providence is directing it. And he holds me. He holds me. The 18th century hymn writer, William Cooper, who struggled with depression, by the way, struggled massively in his life. He penned the following soul-encouraging words here, thinking about God's good providence and trusting it. He said, God moves in a mysterious way. Does he not? We don't always understand. God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm." Deep in his dark and hidden minds, with never-failing skill, he fashions all his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Oh, fearful saints, and we are at times, are we not? O oh, fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds that you now dread are big and with mercy will break, on, with blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, though we're tempted to do so, are we not? Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace, for behind a frowning providence hides a smiling face. God's purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err, and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. I love those words. Rich, deep theology in those words. We appreciate now the wisdom and insight that we've been given in Christ. You see, apart from the wisdom and insight that God provides for his children, a hopeless conclusion to the story is inescapable. We look at the world around us and we see it being torn apart, ripping apart at the seams. And a hopeless conclusion is the only outcome. But with wisdom, with understanding, with insight, we understand what God has done what he is doing in Christ, and we know what the end of the story is. He wins. Not does he win, he's won. He's won. Number three, God will one day bless us with an incomprehensible inheritance. God will one day bless us with an incomprehensible inheritance. Let me draw your attention back to verses 11 and 12 here. Paul writes, In him, We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things. If You have a pen there, and you don't mind writing in your Bible, circle all things, bracket all things, underline all things, highlight all things. He works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that, or in order, that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. See, what Paul does here in verses 11 and 12 is he he raises our eyes once again to see that God is the source and Jesus Christ the medium of soul-melting, redeeming love. I love this. John Owen, one of the Puritans, he once said this. He said, redemption flows from the heart of the Father through the blood of the Son. Redemption. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Redemption flows from the heart of the Father and through the blood of the son we are the recipients of blessing beyond measure here specifically it's the blessing of divine inheritance paul says in him we have obtained an inheritance i want you to notice one thing here notice the past tense have obtained notice the past tense there we have obtained an inheritance You see, oftentimes when something in the future was so unalterable and so inflexibly certain that it absolutely could not fail to happen, the Greeks would refer to it as having already happened. Such is the case here. Such is the case here. Though we've not received our inheritance in its complete measure, its future certainty causes Paul to write as if we already possessed it in full. Now, we'll learn next week as we turn our attention to the Spirit's work, the Holy Spirit's work in redemption, Verses 3 through 6, the Father's role in redemption. Verses 7 through 12, the Son's role in redemption. Verses 13 and 14, the Holy Spirit's role in redemption. We'll see next week that we've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, a deposit which is guaranteeing our inheritance, which is to come. So we have a guaranteed inheritance, but we are still waiting for the full measure of that inheritance. When does that come, by the way? It comes at at, the, at, the, at, at our adoption as sons, when Jesus Christ returns and we are resurrected, at the resurrection, these lowly bodies will be resurrected. That will be the conclusion. That will be the end. That will be the fulfillment of our inheritance. But now, God has placed himself in you. God in you, the hope of glory as a deposit guaranteeing the inheritance which is to come. But Paul, because it is so inflexibly certain, writes as though it has already happened, as though it has already taken place. He does the same thing. Paul does the same thing again in chapter 2, verse 6, when he says, God raised us up and seated us, past tense, seated us with him in the heavenly places. You see, though we have not yet entered into our glorious future home, Paul is so certain of its coming that he writes as if it has already happened. And the same is true of our inheritance. Now, that phrase, in him we have obtained an inheritance, it can be translated in one of two beautiful ways and be absolutely theologically correct both ways. Look at that phrase there. In him we have obtained an inheritance. That is a correct translation of the original language. But so is this. In him, we were made an inheritance. In him, we obtained an inheritance. And in him, we were made an inheritance. Both are true. You see, in Jesus Christ, we have a wonderful inheritance. As a matter of fact, Peter spoke about that inheritance in First Peter chapter 1, when he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He's given us what we don't deserve. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is, listen to these adjectives here, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You see, just as the Israelites in the Old Testament obtained an inheritance in the promised land, so we obtain a heavenly inheritance. We become partakers of a heavenly inheritance in which has been secured for us in Christ. But at the same time, We are also an inheritance. We were also made an inheritance. Here's what I mean by that. Jesus Christ is the Father's love gift to the church. So is the church the Father's love gift to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God's love gift to us. But we, the church, the redeemed, are the love gift from the Father to the Son, Think about how many times, over and over and over in John 17, that's Jesus' high priestly prayer, just hours before the cross. Think about how many times in John chapter 17, Jesus refers to those whom the Father has given him. We are an inheritance of his. We are his inheritance. We are his bride. We are the reward for his suffering. You ever considered that? We, the redeemed, are the reward. For his suffering, we will be presented to him unblemished, without blemish or defect one day. We are an inheritance to him. Four things Christ has done for us in verses 7 through 12. He's redeemed us by his blood. He's forgiven us of our trespasses. He's given us all the wisdom and insight that we need to understand the mystery of his will, namely salvation through the cross of Jesus Christ, and that God is going to sum up or wrap up. He's going to close up shop in the Lord Jesus Christ, and everything will fall under him as the head. Everything in heaven and everything on earth will be summed up, wrapped up, united to him. And then lastly, we've been rewarded with an inheritance. Four things Christ has done for us in verses 7 through 12. And all of this is by the power of God and for the preeminence of Christ. It's all by his power. Paul says, We have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works out all things according to the counsel of his word. Remember that predestined means that redemption is a forethought and not an afterthought. God God isn't making up the plan as he goes here. The plan was settled and fixed from eternity past. It's just playing out just as he planned. Now, God isn't working out his redemptive plan by the seat of his pants. He determined in advance, and so shall it be. But that word works there in your Bible. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That word works there. It's the Greek word energo. You hear an English word in there? How about energy? That Greek word is the word from which we derive our English word, energy. And it means with great power. Great power. God displays his power in both in that he is the divine planner of redemption's drama, but he is also the one who is the impeccable executor of his plans. Power. He's the divine planner of redemption's drama, but he is the impeccable executor of those plans. Here's what that means for us, brothers and sisters. It means that nothing can upset or frustrate the future glory that we look forward to as the redeemed people of God. Nothing can frustrate that. Nothing can strip that away from us. Matter of fact, we'll learn next week in verses uh, 13 and 14 that being marked with the seal, being marked with that, that's that's divine ownership there. He he has put his seal on us that signals us to understand that he owns us and nothing can strip us from him. The glory that we have to look forward to cannot be taken. It cannot be removed from us. Friends, we don't have to live in fear or even mild suspicion that God won't make good on his every word. He will make good on his every word. He who in love predestined his own to be adopted as sons and daughters will never forsake them. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. He never said it would be easy. Jesus never said that following him would be easy. Birds of the air have nests, foxes of the ground have holes, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. It's not going to be easy, but I'll never leave you nor forsake you. What a wonderful promise. He will carry out his plan to completion, perfecting everything that he started in us, and he will bring us safely home. Nothing can frustrate his plan. Paul was so convinced that he said, and we should say too, that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other thing in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, nothing can separate us. But we also learn something of Jesus Christ's preeminence here. Let me turn your attention super briefly to the concluding words that appear in verse twelve. Paul says, So that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Here's what I want you to get from that. Everything God does is for his glory. Everything God does is to set his son on display. Therefore, everything we do should be pointed at or aimed at glorifying God. If God weren't zealous, if he weren't jealous, if he didn't do everything for his glory, he would be an idolater. But that's not the case. God is jealous for his glory. That means that all I have, all I am, and all I do is because of his grace. God didn't choose me because of me. He didn't save me because of me. He didn't adopt me because of me. He chose me, adopted me, in spite of me because it pleased him to do so. It was his divine prerogative. What does that do? It removes any ground for boasting in you or me. Because God is the one who has done it all, it removes any boasting from you and me. What does Paul tell us just one chapter later in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, this not of yourselves, not by works. Finish the sentence. So that no man can boast. All that I am, all that I have, is because of his grace. I'm just a recipient of lavish mercy and grace. We don't exist. We don't exist to be pleased by God. We exist to please Him. 2 Corinthians 5.9, so whether you're at home in the body or away, we make it our aim to please Him. We learn something of Christ's preeminence here. Let me close this morning by just sharing with you a parallel verse. You'll see a lot of similarities in the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians. They were written close to the same time, same author. Listen to what Paul says here in Colossians chapter 1 and we'll land the plane on this note. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. So he's the creator of everything on, in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he, not us, he might have preeminence. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, here's familiar language, to reconcile to himself all things, whether in, on earth or in heaven. How? By making peace by the blood of his cross. And so here's the question, friends. Is he preeminent in your life? Is he preeminent in your life? If not, come to him, repent, anchor your hope in him. He fails not. He is the preeminent one. He's the preeminent one who hung on a tree.